0: The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. It's a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I've practiced as a geotechnical engineer for over 17 and a half years. And in addition to practicing engineering, I enjoy mentoring young engineers and first generation college students. I've focused on helping to increase the number of pre-college students that are interested in STEAM majors and fields, STEAM meaning science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which I may sometimes refer to as the GeoPod, I'll be talking with none other than Dr. Sam Clemens, a professor at Syracuse University, about his role as a professor at the university, and the things that he does to help geotechnical engineers and students succeed. Before we jump in, let me remind you that you can find everything you need related to this podcast, the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, at the following website, geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find links to the past shows and links to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And there's also a form where you can submit topics and guest ideas. Again, that's geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, as doing so will help more geotechnical engineers find the show. Now, I'd like to formally introduce you to our guest for today, Dr. Samuel Clemens. Dr. Clemens joined the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Syracuse University in 1977 as an associate professor. He is a fellow in the American Society of Civil Engineers, a member of Chi Epsilon and Sigma Chi, and he was elected to Tau Beta Pi as an eminent engineer in 1977. He has received Outstanding Teacher Awards at the University of Missouri Rola 1974 to 1975, 1976 to 1977, and at Syracuse University, 1988 to 89, the Division of Higher Education and Ministry of the Methodist Church selected him as the 1990 Scholar Teacher of the Year at Syracuse University. Dr. Clemens received the 1998 Outstanding Educator Award from the St. Lawrence Section of the American Society of Engineering Education. He has received many, many, many awards for both his teaching and engineering work, way too many to list here. And he is the editor of three books and author, a co-author of over 60 technical publications. Dr. Clemens received his Ph.D. in civil engineering for the Georgia Institute of Technology in 1973 of relevance to me. Professor Clemens was my first soul mechanics professor, and he led my senior capstone design class when I was back at Syracuse University. With that, let's jump into our conversation with Professor Sam Clemens. Welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. We have our guest today, Professor Sam Clemens. Welcome to the Geotechnical Podcast. We are honored to have you, Professor.
1: Thank you so much for including me in this wonderful program. I really, really appreciate it. Oh,
0: man, this is a, a, it's kind of like a moment of personal pride because you are my first soil mechanics professor at Syracuse over 20 years. Years ago wow, believe that
1: Wow <laughs> I, Actually, I remember I was going to include a little bit about that. or No, I remember teaching you foundation engineering and design, and at the beginning of the semester, you were okay, but you didn't seem to be tuned in. and then one day we talked after class and you had this little gleam in your eye, and I thought, "Oh, we've got him. He's going to be a great geotechnical engineer." and sure enough, that happened. I'm so proud. we're all so proud of your accomplishments.
0: Yeah, at first I didn't know what was going on. So it was a particulate matter. I was like, what is going on?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's true. It's uh, very different from structures and uh, a lot of the other civil uh, specialties. You're right.
0: Well, we gave an uh, introduction, went over your bio earlier in the show. But like, if we had to say it in your own words, what would you tell the listeners your daily life is like at Syracuse University? And you've been here since late 70s. So that daily life probably changed over the years. But what do you say?
1: Yes, it has. Yeah, I've been here 43 winters. We counted as winters. <laughs> I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, originally, but 43 years. I retired in 2014, <laughs> but um, I've still continued to be active in the department and I assist with the senior design course, which is a wonderful, wonderful experience. We really have one of the oldest senior design courses in the country. Almost 60 years ago, we started it. It was called planning engineering in those days, but it's really a wonderful capstone design course. And I think it's something that I love to teach because it gives students that are not necessarily great analytical performers, but are good designers, a chance for them to uh, excel. And it's always wonderful to see students that you know, maybe not the smartest kids in the class, but the ones that know how to design and get excited with teamwork and work well together and come up with a good project. So I do that. I review papers uh, for several professional societies, helping the department any way I can. So it's good.
0: I remember the capstone design. That was a lot of fun, you know, working with somebody to focus in the civil, somebody to focus in environmental focus in the structure. And the reality is that that capstone was a preview of what, you know, the daily life would look like as a consultant, because we work with different consultants all the time, different disciplines.
1: That's what we hope to do to simulate. And then the wonderful thing is at the end, we have a presentation where we have engineers come, prominent engineers like Jared Green come and visit and listen to the seniors present their projects. And you ask wonderful questions. You prepare them for that real life experience. And so I'd love to do it. I hope I can maybe be hobbling in there for the next couple of years to continue to do it.
0: I also saw a video that uh, Syracuse posted, I believe it was from last year where it showed, I think there were freshmen or sophomore students that had prepared bridge designs and they had to step on them. And one of the things I thought was so powerful is that you would step on the bridge with the designer and sometimes you'd stay and other times you guys would, you know, come down to 18 inches, but I thought that was pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of, that was a freshman course. And, uh, We would give them a limited amount of material, and they had to support 300 pounds, and uh, it was fun. Yeah, I think it really uh, sort of brought home not just the theoretical part, but practical application. you got to build something that's going to stand up and take the load, so they get a visual idea if it doesn't perform well. And everybody's watching, too, which makes it even more fun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we do that at the end of the semester, yeah. Well, Professor, I know
0: that you served as a naval officer in the U.S. Navy Civil Engineering Corps, and I want to thank you for your service. What would you say? How did that experience benefit your career?
1: Yeah, that was a wonderful adventure, number one. And number two, it it really turned me into a man. I really recommend it for anybody that (laughs) gets out, graduates, and doesn't know what to do. Boy, it just what they do is they take you, they train you, and they put you in big, positions of uh, responsibility and uh, I mean it it was amazing. I was in the Seabees, they call it construction battalion, a naval construction battalion of about 1,200 men and after I had finished and gotten my commission we went through training and then we went to Guam. There'd been a typhoon that had gone through there so we went to repair a lot of the works there. Interesting geotechnical project there was a warehouse right along the wharf in Guam And we had to drive steel piles down because the hurricane or the typhoons, they call them out there, the wind pressure and uplift. And so we were driving them into crystallized coral. And it was really interesting stuff. You'd get a real high blow count and then bam, it suddenly would break through the coral and drop a few feet. So we had to drive them pretty deep and uh, get them into where there was enough skin friction for us to be able to ensure that we had the uplift capacity for these typhoon type winds. Uh, After actually, the Great Alaska earthquake occurred while we were out there, and we thought a tsunami would hit us, but it missed Guam and but hit Hawaii. And while we were there, we got called up to go into Vietnam. It was at that time when that became very very active. So I went in with an advance party, and we did. That was. Combat engineering, very different from uh, regular engineering. You know, you're, you've got people shooting at you. You've got to be careful what you're doing. You've got to always be ready to grab your weapon and uh, protect yourself. And uh, it was exciting. Probably the best adventure I had was um, I had a CB team, they call it. Took 12 enlisted men and an officer. And I was a young guy. I was an ensign, I guess, when I went. And they sent us up in the northeast Thailand to build a dam, a road, and a bridge. The communists were coming across the Mekong River, and uh, they had this aid aid program where we wanted to show that, you know, we were supporting the people. So we convoy up there with bulldozers and scrapers and all this equipment, and we had about 30 or 40 Thai, young Thai men to help us. And we built this road, and um, it was actually the material was interesting. It's laterite. I don't know if you've you've heard that term, maybe it's a residual soil. It's kind of like low grade iron ore. It's red. And I remember even when I was in master's at Georgia Tech, uh, George Sowers, who was a wonderful professor, had talked about laterite. So I I got a big box of it and mailed it back to him at Georgia Tech. I don't know if he appreciated it or not, but we had to compact the road and we didn't have a water truck. So we took a big old Connex box. It's a big steel box. Turned it on its side and put it on a three-quarter ton truck and cut a hole in the box and put a pipe on there and a water spreader and got the optimum moisture content for this stuff. So you had to really do sort of innovative things to complete the project. We had to hire some elephants to snake some timber out of the jungle to build a bridge. And it was a great adventure. I loved doing it. And we built a dam. We had a concrete spillway and it was so hot we had to pour concrete at night you know, because it would get a flash set. And when the dam was about completed, the rainy season was going to start, and we were worried about erosion on the dam. So I talked to the, the mayor of the city where we were. They were called a Nyampur, and I said, look, let's make a deal. If you'll ask every family around here to bring about one square meter of sod, we'll provide water, if you'll provide some food, we'll have a big picnic, and we'll sod the top of the dam to protect it from erosion. And we did. You know, about a hundred families showed up. It was cool. Yeah, I've got these pictures with these people out there putting grass and and the dam. You know, it survived the first year. I, I never did go back, but uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I, I loved every minute of it.
0: Professor, when I look at your uh, accomplishments and awards, you, you've won a lot. <laughs> you've won a lot of awards, and a lot of them tie back to your excellence in teaching. I just picked one from the bio. It said that. Uh, Uh, One of the awards was in 1998. You got the Outstanding Educator Award from the St. Lawrence section of the American Society of Civil Engineers. I would imagine an award like that comes from somebody that is passionate in what they do. As a student, I had you as a professor, so I know that you're passionate about what you do, but tell us more about why you wanted to be a professor, what that's meant to you.
1: Thank you, Jared. Yeah, actually, that award... I didn't know anything about that. The dean nominated me for that. The dean of our college, and I was shocked. I was really grateful that he did that. Yeah, but I really came into teaching rather late because uh, I had co-op through Georgia Tech. I spent six or seven years in the Navy, and took me a long time to get a PhD. And I really wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. But once I started teaching, I loved it. And I tried to make it practical. I tried to bring in practical examples. I think that's the value of of going out into practice first and then teaching, you know, if you have some experience. I think the students appreciate that. So I love to do that. I'm kind of a visual learner. I've taken a lot of pictures as I've gone along. So I tried to reinforce concepts with visual ideas. And I just loved it. I love students. I love having students like you, somebody that you started, you didn't know if you wanted to be in Geotech, but when you found that you liked it, it, it was just thrilling to me to see you take it and, and have all the wonderful accomplishments that you've done since then. that just makes my heart full to think about students like that so it's a something that I love to do. I have to tell you uh, the visual part often I would talk about a concept i don 't know compaction or permeability. Then I try to show some slides you know that I had from examples. I had an eight thirty class uh, typically and One day I I go to class and almost everybody's there right on time. There's a lot of people there earlier than me. And that's kind of suspicious, you know, but so I've lectured going. And about the last 15 minutes of the class, I'm going to show them slides. I shut down everything and I said, okay, we're going to show some slides. And I pulled the screen down and they had taped a centerfold of a Playboy bunny on the screen. And it said, hi, Sam, I love your Southern accent. (laughs) When I pulled down the screen to show the slides, so I was so flabbergasted that I, 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 I just had to dismiss class. <laughs> but they knew I was going to show some slides. So they knew that I love to use visual learning. It was fun. Yeah, that's uh, if it's a profession that you love, just like you love your profession and you can just feel it when you uh, talk with people and work in it. So that's great. And you think about your experience, you think about the good times, but what are some of the challenges that you had to overcome? In the beginning, teaching is, you do have to make some sacrifices. You're probably not as well paid for it, you know. Often you don't get much recognition at the beginning. There's all this pressure to do research and you get hit from all different sides for research, for committee work. I wish we had mentors. We I think I was department chair for a while. We tried to do more of that, but Faculty need mentors as well as they do in the practice. I'm sure you had mentors when you got out and started companies. And uh, I think that uh, that was a part. You weren't sure where you were supposed to spend your energy. And if you do too much in teaching and neglect your research, then, you know, you're in jeopardy of not getting tenure. If you do too much research, then you kind of become, you're not as excited about classwork. So it's a balance. And it's something that you have to feel your way along, especially in those times in the in the 60s. you People, there weren't people there to guide you along. So I think, I hope that's gotten better today.
0: Yeah, mentorship is so key. I think that whether you're in an academic sense or if you're in the professional sense, if you're in the contract sense, if you, if you don't have a mentor, you almost have to pathfind find yourself and it's really hard. You know, you're the beginning of the forest and it's like, you got to make that path. It's very complicated.
1: Exactly
0: and as a professor, I mean, what are some of the ways that you think we're instrumental in continuing to learn and stay on top of things?
1: Again, I think the professional societies do a great job of that. ASCE, I was a committee chair for the shallow foundations committee, uh, the deep foundations Institute, get involved with those institutes. You can go to seminars. You can learn things. I learned so much from some of the short courses there, just going to meetings and, um, Meeting with colleagues, talking to other faculty and what they're doing. One of the other things I did, if, if anybody ever goes into education, I got, we had an accreditation review, you know, every six years. And we had this guy, I was a department chair, and he was such a nitpicker. Oh, man, he made me so mad with the things that, you know, the little things he found wrong with, the, with our program. So I called up and complained, and and the guy says, well, why don't you become a evaluator? If you want to change the system, become one of them. So I actually did start going to accreditation visits, and it was eye-opening. I I went to all different types of schools, from small ones up to, I went to Stanford. I went to, you know, and you really gain a wonderful uh, sense of what others do in their educational programs, and that was a really great help to see how other people did approach their education. A lot of good ideas came out.
0: That's awesome. And that's so important. I mean, if you lose your ABET accreditation, I mean, that's kind of it.
1: Yeah, it's a very serious program. It's good.
0: When you think back on your career, I mean, what do you think were some of the big surprises when you think about the time as an educator?
1: I guess I'm surprised at how much today the computing applications have taken over, how much that's used today. And it's wonderful. And I agree with it. In classes and graduate courses, always wanted the student, for instance, if they do a slope stability analysis and they use a computer program, I want a little hand check on, we call it a gut check. I was a consultant for O'Brien and Gear for the geotechnical group, and they'd always say, okay, we need a gut check on this question here. So I was surprised at how much, I mean, we rely on it and it's great and finite elements are wonderful. And I was surprised. I, I think we still need to have a gut check when we do this type of work.
0: I agree. I mean, you can have all these colorful plots, but if you really know how to explain what the soil should be doing, you can't check to see if it's right. Even if you have, you know, 12 significant digits for how much settlement's going to occur, it's like, can you solve it on the back of an envelope, is what we used to say, right?
1: That's so true. Yeah. And I think that stands people good stead. It's sort of good innate engineering sense, you know, sort of what's the scale of things. I used to have my graduate students read a paper by Ralph Peck about scale, you know, looking at a site, somebody says, Oh, there's 320,000 KIP loads. Well, wait a minute. Let's, are you sure that's right? i you know, just have practical understanding of scale and uh, quantity and uh, what's right. Like you said, with settlement, you bring it out to all those significant figures and it's really not very valid.
0: Scale is so key. As a young engineer, you show up at a site, client says it's going to be a a seven-acre site. You come there and say, what do you think? It's pretty big. He said, yeah, it looks like a seven-acre site. I mean, that's what you said, right? (laughs) If you don't understand scale, it's like, how do you tie it back, you know?
1: Exactly.
0: Another thing that I always think it's uh, great about your experience is that you tried to retire a few times. Can you tell our listeners about that? Because I think as a geotechnical engineer and a geotechnical engineering professor, your retirement is pretty spectacular when you think about what happened, but please share.
1: 2014, I retired. I had a great party. I gave a lecture on the history of engineering, but some of my students came back from all over the world. It was fun. So the chancellor called me the next fall and he said, you know, our the dean of Hendricks Chapel, who is the religious leader on campus, Syracuse University was founded as a Methodist church, by the Methodist church a long time ago in the 1870s. And uh, we built this beautiful chapel right on the quad. As you remember, in the surveying course, you had to estimate the height of the chapel using a triangulation. But anyway, he said, how would you like feel about being the interim dean of Hendrick's Chapel? I said, Chancellor, you know, I'm a Christian. I've got a little Christian group I advise, but holy moly. He says, you can do it. You can do it only for a few months till we find a replacement. Well, it turned out being two and a half years I served as a dean of Hendricks Chapel. It was wonderful because I got to see a whole other aspect of the university community. There's a lot of support out there for students. You know that that are having problems. We have a food pantry. We developed a lot of programs to help people. So it was a 180 degree turn from engineering. But we had let's see, ten chaplains. We had a tremendous. We had a Catholic. 10 different faith groups. And here's an engineer talking to him. But I try to be logical. I think they appreciated that. But uh, we found a wonderful uh, replacement. And then about six months later, he says, calls me up again. He says, Sam, we're starting an ombudsman program on campus to have a university ombudsman. How would you like to be the first, the interim university ombudsman? Only take a couple of months. He tells me the same story about it. I took that on and uh, I served in that for about a year and a half. And that was interesting too as an ombudsman. You know, it's an old Swedish term that uh, people were unhappy with the king of Sweden, so he appointed an ombudsman, a person that you could come to with complaints anywhere. There was no retribution. And so I would hear, it's amazing. You know, people would come with with complaints. I couldn't do a lot about them, but I could kind of head them in the right direction. And and I had to report to him every month about what no names or anything, you know, all secure, you know, no, no, but what the temperature of the campus was, where were people unhappy, what could he do to help things. So it, it was quite an interesting position. And, but I'm glad to be back now in a good old senior design and uh, helping with that course. But that was fun. Yeah, it was really interesting.
0: That is cool. You talk about, you know, expanding the scope of practice. That's uh... yeah,
1: right. sometimes when you raise
0: your hand and say, yes, I could do it. You have to figure out how to do it.
1: You've done that. I know you've done it in so many ways. It takes a little courage, but it, it's really rewarding, I think, isn't it? You, It opens up your mind to, you've done that, I know, in so many different areas. Yeah. So it's fine.
0: And we think about diversity within what it means to be a geotechnical engineer, I know there was a time you taught a class about Leonardo da Vinci, and I think that's just awesome. And actually, I have a little shirt that you know gives a tribute to that, the divine geometry, tying that back to pizza, right?
1: Uh, yeah. I wish you'd been around for it. We had a Mellon Foundation project where we tried to integrate the arts and sciences with the professional schools They, they seemed like there were separate entities you know engineering's over here, uh, law is here new uh public communications. How do we integrate those with uh, arts and sciences? How do we get to know faculty and so actually, we had programs and I got to know a Renaissance art professor and uh, i'd always been interested in the history of engineering. I tried to bring it into the class and so he asked me to lecture on Roman engineering. He was teaching an introductory art course, art history, and he was talking about the Romans. So I did that. And then we, I did a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci. So one day we were walking across the quad and he says, you know, I teach a course on Michelangelo. It's an art course. And I, what I do is I teach the kids about Michelangelo. And then at spring break, we go to Italy and we see his works. He says, but, you know, it's kind of boring. these art students are OK, but I'd like to mix it up. He said, let's do something on Leonardo da Vinci. I said, "Okay." we'll call it Leonardo da Vinci Artist and Engineer. We made a proposal to the Dean of Engineering and Arts and Sciences, and they each gave us several thousand dollars to support the kids at spring break. So here's the plan. So we would teach the course together. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a lot better than me. So I had to really scramble. I mean, you know, he was one of these eloquent professors that speaks in paragraphs. You know, he talked about Leonardo's concept of the Mona Lisa and all this. <laughs> so I had to really scramble to keep up with him. So what we would do then, and we would stay in the class. It wasn't that he would teach one day and I wouldn't teach him. You know, I stayed with him. He stayed with me. He asked questions. I asked questions. And the students often said they loved it when we get in an argument about something that they could see. But then, so what we would do at spring break is we would limit the class to about 25 students, half engineering, half arts and sciences. We'd gather them all up and fly to Florence and spend a couple of days there. And then we'd go up to Vinci, where Leonardo was an illegitimate son of a notary. So his name means Leonard of Vinci. You know, he didn't have a last name. It was Leonardo of Vinci because he was born in Vinci, beautiful little mountain town right outside of Florence. So we'd go see where he was born. And then in Florence, we'd go visit his workshops. A lot of his paintings are there at the um, main art institute in, in Florence. We'd visit there. And then we'd fly, uh, we'd take a train up to Milano because the Last Supper is there. And that's a magnificent painting. It's been damaged. And they only allow 20 people in as a group for only 15 minutes at a time. It's all humidity and temperature control. So we would uh, go into the, we'd visit that. And then uh, Leonardo, at the end of his life, the king of France, Francis I, brought him to Amboise in France and had a house for him. And so Leonardo died there. So with the last few days, we go to Paris, we go to the Louvre because most of his paintings are there, the Mona Lisa's there, and then we go down where he was he died. So we started in Vinci where he was born and ended up in Amboise, where he died. Wonderful program. The kids loved it. We enjoyed it. We did it for about 10 years, and it was exhausting, though, to take for about 10 days so spring break. But Leonardo, man, I mean, he anticipated. He understood geology. He says, how do you have these fossils up in the mountains? How did they get there? You know, and amazing polymath. You know, your shirt is mathematics. His geometry is amazing. We actually have a copy of some of his notebooks at uh, Syracuse University. We had to have to handle them with uh, gloves on. You know, we take the students and let them see the replications of his drawings. And they're just phenomenal. Wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah.
0: That is awesome. Those students are never going to forget that.
1: I think so, yeah. Our
0: listeners are geotechnical engineers from folks that are in school and trying to figure out if they want to go into geotechnical all the way up through practicing PEs and PhDs. What advice would you give them for staying technically sharp? Like, what are the things that geotechnical engineers should be doing consistently so they can stay sharp over the years?
1: Number one, I tell this to my students to join ASCE, join the profession. You're part of it. You need to support it. You need to be active in it. I used to teach. Well, when the freshmen and the seniors, we'd have a part of the course was on ethics or proper professional conduct, and uh, I would always say we'd have some examples, and I'd say, make sure that you join the ASC because they can help you with these problems. About oh, I don't know, ten years ago, I have a student call me up and he says I graduated in civil engineering and. He says, I went into the rock business. He was a, what do you call those people that help set up rock shows? Uh, I don't know if there's a name for him anyway, but he's a grunt, you know. So, I'm down in New York City and we're setting up this rock concert in this warehouse in older part of New York City. And some of these, they were steel beams and some of them were really corroded. And uh, he says, I'm worried. He says, we're hanging heavy speakers from these. So it's an engineering problem, but he's a grunt, you know, <laughs> he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to his boss and he says, you know, I'm worried about these steel beams up here. They're those joists, you know, welded bar joists. And the guy says, Don't you tell me about that. We're putting a concert in. I don't want to lose any money. You know, he, he blows him off. And he says, Well, I need to tell the owner. And he says, You do, you're fired. So he's caught, you know, between notifying this or not. So he calls me up. I do not want to. So I said, Well, yeah, I know it. Contact ASCE, the headquarters right there. You get a hold of their legal department and they'll help you out. And sure enough, they guided him through. He wrote a letter and presented it to his boss and to the owner to sort of protect himself from that. The profession, I think, is uh, just invaluable. And go to those meetings. Get to know uh, your fellow colleagues. I love Geostrata of the magazine. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. You know, I was going to say that, that we were talking about new research. There's a One of the things I always think is so important, one of my graduate courses, I spent almost a half a semester on field test uh, interpretation of the results. You know, before you even do any design, what have you got out there in the field? What's the geology, what it's like? And they've got this new thing where you can do visual, you can do virtual reality and look at the profile of the soil. So really wonderful. So I would encourage everybody to. I love the DFI. That's a wonderful organization. Well, as ASCE, both of them provide great support for young engineers. So do it, have fun, meet those people and talk dirt, you know, talk soils.
0: I agree. It's been uh, many years now that I've been, you know, working as a geotechnical professional. And I can say that some of my best memories are being a part of these organizations, especially the two that you mentioned.
1: Very unselfish people. Yeah. Well, thank you so
0: much. We're going to take a quick break here. And then we're gonna close out our talk with Professor Sam Clemens when we talk about the career factor of safety. Stick around. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for our career factor of safety end segment in geotechnical engineering. Just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with none other than Dr. Sam Clemens, and we're going to ask him just that. Professor, we spoke about all that you've accomplished in your career. What advice would you give to those geotechs that are listening that are planning to transition into the academic route? They might be a master's student getting ready to get a Ph.D. and then become a professor. Or they might be working as a professional and say, so you know, not want to go back and teach. How can they build security in their careers to give them a factor of safety when planning such a transition?
1: Thank you, Jerry. That's a great question. And I'm so glad that you're posing that because we need good teachers. We need people committed and passionate about teaching. So it's a really important thing to do. I think the first thing is you have to realize that you may be poor for a while. The transition may not be so easy. So be willing to have a little sacrifice there. For young students, master's, PhD students, if at all possible, get out there and get some practical experience. Six months, a year, whatever you can fit in to sort of underpin when you go into teaching. It'll serve you in so many ways for many, many years. For those people in the mid-level or later that want to, Think about going into teaching. First thing I would do is volunteer at your local university or somewhere to be an adjunct professor. They won't pay you very much, I can guarantee you that, but you'll get a feel for what it's like to teach. Now, it's not exactly the way it'll be because if you do it full time, it's completely different from just dropping in and doing it, you know, once a week or whatever, but if you can find an adjunct position or if you can offer some seminars at ASCE or DFI Try that and see if you enjoy doing it, if you like it, then I uh, would we'll take the step and you really do need your, your what we call your PhD card your, or your union card, your PhD, so that uh, it kind of ensures you, helps you along the tenure track and all that. And the first few years, it's a struggle. It may be a struggle financially, but if you make some contacts with local consulting firms, you've got all this wonderful experience if you're a more mature person or if you're a young Person coming out, you've got some great research ideas, hook up with those in consulting firms and see if you can't serve them, help them, and use that during your time that you complete your education and start teaching. So please do it. We need people out there to get involved.
0: Thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing such great insights with our listeners. What is the best way for them to find you? Uh, you're in social
1: media or email you can share. LinkedIn. My email is spclement, S-P-C-L-E-M-M, at S-Y-R E-D-U. Love to hear from anybody. Love to hear from people. Thank you so much. Thank you,
0: Jared. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, or questions. Please feel free to go to our website, that being geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com, where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode three, as well as links to any resources, websites, and books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute, and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.